Friends, I'm Dylan Marin, back with another unboxing video just for you, where I dissect some of the most talked about intangible items on the market. Today, I'm unboxing police brutality. If you don't see this product in your neighborhood, don't worry, just head on down to your nearby poor black or brown neighborhood, and this is almost guaranteed to be in stock. I was hired to write and produce videos for a digital television studio called Seriously.TV. I gained this really big audience very fast. And I found that like to be really successful, I had to access the snarkiest part of myself, the um, most vicious part of myself that was down to clap back. This was 2016, and so there was a lot of like heated division. From the makers of rape culture, unjust wars, and everything bad, I'm unboxing masculinity. It kills more Americans than AIDS, drugs, terrorism, and the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan combined. Today, I'm unboxing gun violence. I became so obsessed with the metrics, the likes, the views, the shares. My goal was to make each video more popular than the one before it. And I thought that by doing so, I was advancing social justice causes. I thought the more viral I went, the more valiantly I was fighting for my side. The challenging realization was when I discovered that I was really only speaking to people who already agreed with me and not speaking to the people who I actually wanted to reach with my videos. And I consciously changed course. Huh, I didn't realize well, that's that. an interesting question. You know, I've never heard of it from that. So let's talk about that. Let's talk no, about I think that. you need to come over, stand in my shoes, agree to disagree. This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Today on the show, is there a way out of this toxically divided moment in America? Do we want a way out? We're angry, fearful, and pessimistic about the direction the country is headed. Partisan gridlock prevents the government from solving pressing problems. We're anxious and depressed in our personal lives. But outrage is addictive. Lashing out at an enemy can trigger reward pathways in the brain. When humans feel threatened, we are wired to retreat into groups where we're safe to be and think and act the way we want. So if it feels good to be in our bubbles and to disdain, even despise anyone outside, how do we move forward as a nation? I think the election was a big turning point for me. The 2016 election. Dylan Marin had been so sure he was on the winning side with his viral videos mocking conservative views. But this thing that we were told over and over again is never going to happen, happened. Donald Trump was elected to be the president of the United States. And I think it was then that I realized that, oh, like, I don't think I really know this country. I thought I was speaking to the whole world, the whole country with my videos. And I think it was then that I really realized I was speaking to an echo chamber. And if I indeed want to be talking about these difficult topics, capital D, capital T, then what good is it doing if it's not reaching this huge pocket of the country that I don't think I realized really existed. We are living in incredibly divided times and connection does not feel as encouraged as division. The pithiest and most negative thing wins the day. And yes, there are exceptions where heartwarming stories are what breaks through, and, and those are great. But I do think that like takedown pieces are really in vogue right now. Um, identifying the sins of your enemy is a genre growing in popularity. Which you were really good at, by the way. I was really good at, I was really good at. And that is not how I wanted to march towards a future that I wanted to be part of. Initially, Marin had no idea what that future looked like. If he wanted to speak with, rather than at, people who disagreed with him, how could he make those conversations happen? The first one just 
fell into his lap. There were a lot of people who who really were not fans of what I was doing. And when I started getting the hate comments, I started kind of instinctively taking screenshots of all the hate, the comments, the messages, and I collected them on a folder on my desktop, a folder, in fact, I see right now, <laughs> called the hate folder, all caps. And this torrent of hate um, was so overwhelming, I had to express it somehow. I had to reclaim it somehow. And, and my answer at first to reclaiming it was reposting it, making fun of typos, making fun of faulty logic. And so I started, you know, doing this thing where at comedy shows I would scroll through some of these comments and messages and share them and I got a lot of laughs and people really enjoyed it. Someone said, uh, at Dylan Marin, if AIDS had a voice and a stupid haircut, and I have, no, it's okay, I have two. And then I posted one such video um, onto my Facebook and a person who was featured in the video identified himself in the video and he got in touch with me and he suggested that we have a phone call. And when I saw his first message come in, my stomach just dropped, right? Like this person who had only existed in my hate folder had now seen a video where I identified the typos in his message to me and, you know, like, it, it just felt like the echo chamber, like, was punctured. The little bubbles we were in, they popped for a moment. And that we saw each other so clearly through this portal that no one really planned for. Can you, can you quote for us, at least in portion, um, what he wrote to you that qualified him for your hate folder? Yeah, I think I have it um, verbatim. Um, you're a moron. You're the reason this country is dividing itself. All your videos are merely opinion and an awful opinion, I must say. Just stop. Plus, being gay is a sin. Um, in the scale of hateful things people have written to you, where does that one fall? It's not the most hateful. I was getting death threats and I was getting really vile, abusive messages that Josh's does not register as, right? Like, it was mean, and there was homophobia thrown in at the end, but it wasn't by any means the cruelest one I got. But our brains are not good at sorting through the pile of things we process online. And so I, I called this message a hate message because that's the only word I could think to describe all of these messages. I was so nervous leading up to the call. Hey, is this Josh? Hey, yeah, it is. How's your day going so far? It's good. How are you? Oh, I'm good. So, Josh, what inspired and you to send that? And immediately, immediately, when I heard his voice, I was just angry about it all. My fear faded away because it was like we were suspended in this like liminal space where we were offline and we were in this like kind of like a dark room but not a scary dark room just like a, a void a, a happy void <laughs> a neutral void let's <laughs> say a neutral void and we, our voices were just suspended there and we were getting to know each other and it felt just as I described when he messaged me that it felt like our respective bubbles were punctured and we saw each other it felt like the next step of that. It felt like we had found this like mystical bridge that didn't appear on any maps that were being given to us culturally. When you embarked on this conversation, were you hoping to change his mind about any of his positions? I think in the back of my mind, that was maybe a fantasy, but I also wanted, the the main thing I wanted to do was connect with him on an emotional level, um, to show that I was a human, to learn more about how he was a human being. I, you know, one thing that Josh did share with me was that he was bullied in high school. 
and I'm I was speaking to him when he was in his senior year of high school, and so it was like live from the front lines of high school um, that he was experiencing bullying. I'm a little bit bigger. I don't like to use the word fat, but I am a little bit bigger than a lot of my classmates, and they seem to judge me before they even got to know me. I've been called stupid, idiotic. I've been told nobody cares about me. I've been told to drink bleach. Just yesterday, someone told me I was ugly as hell. I don't exactly know how ugly hell is, but I don't think it's pretty. Well, I mean, that that's awful of them. I mean, I also just want to let you know, Josh, I was bullied in high school too. To find this common thing that we shared, that we had both been bullied, you know, it was common ground. But I also think it taught me the limits of common ground too. Because simply just the fact that he is being bullied in high school and I was bullied in high school doesn't erase what he wrote to me. But it allows me to see him as a human being who was hurt and was being hurt at the time and then by his own admission took that hurt and then transferred it on to me, a stranger who he came across on the internet. Did you get an apology from Josh? I, I actually, I think I did. I think the words sorry were actually said in our very first message exchange before we even um, got on the phone with each other. But what counts as an apology is only up to the person who is owed the apology. If someone is willing to come to join me in conversation after they've said something negative to me, that counts as an apology to me, even if the word sorry is never uttered. Once again, specifying I am only speaking for myself. But if someone is willing to come and talk to me, to really engage and get into conversation with me, then that is what I need to forgive them. That phone call inspired Dylan Marin's hit podcast. I'm Dylan Marin, and this is Conversations with People Who Hate Me, an interview series where I have in-depth conversations with some of the strangers who have sent me the most hateful or negative messages online. Why did they send these messages? Well, that's essentially what this podcast is trying to figure out. Marin has a new book also called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. And he'll be back a little later to share some practical advice on having those conversations. How did we get to this place where being mean is so common online that the idea of two strangers talking through their differences feels radical? This is Top of Mind. I'm Julie Rose. Division is nothing new in this country. America fought a civil war, after all. But Yale Law professor Amy Chua says there is something different about the current moment. She feels it every day on campus. It's why she wrote her new book, Political Tribes. You know, I've taught at Yale Law School now for, oh my gosh, I don't know how long, you know, I think it's 20 years, and it is unrecognizable. I used to love having these provocative debates, um, I'm still very proud that my classes um, are kind of the most diverse at the law school in the most meaningful way. I mean, not just ethnically and racially and religiously diverse, which they are, but I have conservatives and I have Democrats. And I used to love having these provocative debates and everybody would, you know, argue, but in a kind of a friendly way. And then afterwards, everybody would go for coffee or share cookies um, and everyone was friends. Totally different now. Now, if you are a progressive at Yale Law School and you forget having a friend who's a conservative, but just like one of their tweets or just support them from a tiny for a tiny thing that they said on free speech, 
you will be instantly ostracized. They can't cross lines. Um, it's, you know, it's, it's like there's a lot of policing of boundaries, and it, it really is very toxic. I've never seen my students more anxious, actually, and, and kind of unhappy. Polarization is familiar territory for Amy Chua. A decade ago, she wrote a memoir called Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother. It was a divisive bestseller about parenting that people are still talking about. In this latest book, Political Tribes, Chua attempts to explain why Americans are so divided and angry right now. For one thing, there's social media amplifying our differences. You get more likes on Instagram and Twitter if you say vicious things about the other side. You know, if you say something or tweet something moderate, nobody, nobody cares. More importantly, though, says Chua, America is undergoing a massive demographic shift. Basically, for 200 years, America was economically, politically, and culturally dominated by a white majority. And, you know... When a majority is that dominant, obviously, it can do lots of terrible things. It can oppress and enslave. It can persecute with impunity. But this might be a weird thing to say. It can also afford to be more generous and more inclusive. Um, You know, in the 50s and 60s and 70s, lots of kind of members of the white establishment basically opened up America's universities to Jews and Asians and blacks voluntarily, kind of like because they just thought it was the right thing to do. Totally different today. Today, um, whites are on the verge of losing their majority status at the national level for the first time in U.S. history. And, you know, it's already happened in many of our major cities um, and lots of states, you know, non-Hispanic whites are already not a majority. Why is this important? It's important because today, for the first time, every group is threatened. You know, it's not just racial minorities who feel threatened. Today, whites feel threatened. The statistics are really dramatic. I think it's something like over half of white Americans today feel that they are subject to more discrimination than minorities. And this is not a Republican versus Democrat issue um, because of affirmative action and competition for college spots and diversity policies. I think the Pew Foundation said something like 30% of Democrats also feel that they are subject to a lot or significant discrimination. So this is important because lots of psychological and sociological studies show that it's when groups feel threatened, that's when they retreat into tribalism. That's when they suddenly become more insular, more us versus them, uh, and more defensive. And then within those groups, there's also a fracturing. So in America today, it's not just white versus black or Republican versus Democrat. It's Trump Republicans versus never Trumpers, moderate Democrats versus liberals. Racial and ethnic groups are often splintered by the relative darkness of their skin or how long they've been in the United States. And whites, says Chua, are increasingly fractured by class with wealthy elites concentrated in big cities on the East and West Coast, amassing ever more money and power. They're very insular. They share very similar views. They're often very secular and not religious. They send their kids to the same kind of fancy, often private schools, um, wear the same clothes, have almost the same kind of politically correct vocabulary even. And here's what's interesting. They do not interact or intermarry with, um, let's say, whites or just Americans from southern areas, from blue-collar working-class areas, from what you might call the heartland or President Trump's base. As the gap between rich and poor in America has widened, coastal elites have become what Amy Chua calls a market-dominant minority a small group with disproportionate control in an economy. Most of these groups Chua has studied over the years have been ethnic minorities in other countries. Coastal elites are obviously not an ethnic minority. But Chua thinks the comparison is still apt because one hallmark of an ethnic minority is a tendency to only marry within the group. So what does this have to do with polarization? Well, Chua says market-dominant minorities almost always trigger a political backlash. 
you will see the rise of demagoguery and scapegoating and ethno-nationalist movements um, and, you know, politicians that basically campaign not by saying, vote for me, I have these moderate, thoughtful economic policies, but rather vote for me and we will take back the country from these outsiders that don't even care about, you know, real citizens here. This was something that I thought only applied to countries like Zimbabwe and Indonesia and, you know, Ecuador and Venezuela. America, says Chua, has never had a minority group amass enough power to invoke a backlash that could fundamentally alter the political landscape until now. I think the 2016 election, you will actually see the playbook of President Donald Trump. I mean, that's kind of how we came to power. He said, look, there's the swamp. They they don't care about real Americans. They're these globalists. They they care more about immigrants than they do about Appalachians. They they care more about the poor in Africa than they care about, you know, the poor in our own country. Vote for me and we'll take back our country. And it's a very similar pattern to um, elections that I've tracked in the developing world. The 2016 election took us versus them rhetoric to a whole new level in America amplified our feelings of resentment and fear and sent us skittering even deeper into our corners. And social media poured fuel on the fire. But here is the good news, says Chua. I give a lot of talks and I'm always getting asked, is there another country that we can look to for a model to help us get out of this tribalism? You know, it's funny, they're always thinking of Canada. (laughs) Um, But I'm like, we are the model. Um, We are the best model. It doesn't feel that way right now. It feels such like such a mess. But our our basic bone structure, our DNA, is actually the best suited for overcoming tribalism. And it goes back to kind of what makes this country special. Um, And this is so terrible, like on liberal campuses now, you can't even say America is special or exceptional. That, that, That sounds like, oh, you're just being, you're defending white supremacy, you know? But I just, as the daughter of two immigrants who came to this country because they they saw it as a beacon for the rest of the world. I, I just kind of refuse to think that. I think America is special. It's imperfect, but special. And it does go back to the founding, which is that even though the founders themselves were not perfect, the document that um, on which this country is based is really kind of magnificent. We are not an ethnically based nation. We were always founded on certain values and principles that anyone of any skin color or religious background or linguistic background can embrace. Look, you can be an American, even if your parents are from Cuba or they're from, you know, Algeria. And, 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 and yeah. that and that's that's something that isn't as common in other wealthy developed nations. No, I coined this term a supergroup in political tribes. And it's a really simple idea. To be a supergroup, you just have to satisfy two really easy criteria. The first is you need to have a really strong, overarching kind of collective identity, like America you know, or China, you know, France. But the second condition to be a supergroup is you um, you have to also allow all kinds of smaller subgroup identities to flourish. And at our best, there's no place like America, right? This is a country at our best. I have to keep qualifying that because we're not at our best right now. Um, but this, at our best, this is a country where you can be Irish-American or Korean-American or Mexican-American or Jewish-American or Mormon-American and be intensely patriotic at the same time. So if you look at other countries, powerful countries like China, you know, my own family is originally from China. It is a very strong country, but it is not a supergroup because it satisfies the first condition. It's got an incredibly strong national identity, but that national identity is ethnically based. It's Han Chinese, right? So the Uyghurs, the Tibetans, all these kind of smaller minorities are definitely not able to thrive. And oddly enough, a country like France, which is a major Western democracy, you'd think they were more like the United States, but actually they're not. They're actually more like China in this narrow sense that they are not a supergroup. They have a very strong overarching French national identity, but because of their very... um, intense policies of, you might call it forced assimilation or laicite, you know, a lot of people say that that's why they're the Muslim communities or the immigrant communities from 
North Africa are are radicalized. You 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 can't wear religious symbols. There was a burkini ban. There was a headscarf ban. It's um, not considered acceptable to be Muslim French or right. or Algerian French. Yes, or, they're saying no. Like, you're French. If you're going to live here, you must be French. And, and President Sarkozy actually even said that if you want to be French, you have to live like a French person, eat like a French person, talk like a French person, and. Um, and what I'm saying is that in the United States, we are lucky because we don't have to choose between those two. We can be—we can have a very strong national identity and allow for multiculturalism. When a supergroup is functioning well, the divisions between political, cultural, religious, and ethnic groups tend to be less antagonistic because people share a common pride in their national identity and also feel safe to celebrate their own personal identities. America, more than any other wealthy nation, says Chua, has the constitution and the system of government to let unity and diversity flourish side by side. But, she says, I think we're in danger of losing it, and the dangers are coming from both the left and the right. Mm -hmm. Um, On the left, I'm worried that we're losing this belief in the constitutional principles as what is uniting us. You know, I have a lot of students now. They're like, founding fathers, they're just white male slave owners. Mm -hmm. You know, um, why should I listen to them? You know, the Constitution was passed and there was slavery, and that is true, right? And I actually agree that we shouldn't whitewash our history, but I don't think we should throw the baby out with bathwater. You know, the the Constitution, the principles, we've, we've never lived up to them, but they are really precious and unique, and that's our national identity. So that's the threat coming from the left. We're not going to be a supergroup if we don't have anything to connect us. And I, I worry when I see younger members of progressives saying, oh, this is a country built on white supremacy. That's it. Mm-hmm. Um, but the right— is also to blame for this threat, right? Um, it's more the extreme right saying, America should be a white country, or this should be a white Anglo-Protestant country. That's how we started. Um, and if that's true. The founders were Anglo-Protestant. But the point is that the constitutional principles were not, right? We were founded as an ethnically and religiously neutral country. So to the extent you hear political rhetoric on the right saying, you know, we really should only let in Europeans or only white people, that's an equal threat to a, a supergroup identity. And certainly the idea that if we were going to stop, um, you know, allowing individuals, smaller identities to flourish, that would be bad too. You know, you talk about how we need to um, to kind of renegotiate and agree upon some sort of uh, common identity. And and so much of the debates that are happening right now, even on the, you know, on the public school level and school boards, seems like that is... I mean, it doesn't seem that's like very effective, but that is where the debate is taking place to kind of say, all right, well, we ha- how do we tell our story? Do you see a way where we can acknowledge our warts, but also be proud to identify as Americans? I hope so. I mean, I... I- you know, I think that we need some strong leadership, and I get so down just, like, looking at what's going on. It's like a race to the bottom again, you know, just, like, each side wanting to ban more and more books. And, yeah, I I do think there's a way. Like, it was definitely too whitewashed when I was little. It's like, oh, you know, <laughs> these pilgrims were perfect, and the founders were perfect. And so I, I, I really do believe we should not whitewash our history. Like, we need to face it. Um But yeah, I think it goes back, you know, what I often say is, look, it's true. George Washington and Thomas Jefferson were slave owners, but it can simultaneously be true that they were also political visionaries that gave birth to the most inclusive form of government, you know, that the world has ever seen. I really don't like this idea that, look, you— um, because you're white, you need to feel bad about that. That's as bad as saying because you're black, you need to feel bad about that. And so if we can just kind of go back to the principles in the Constitution and say, let's not talk about it that way. Let's talk about the principles in our Constitution, which we have not done a good job really living up to, and kind of fi- kind of start with that, mm. um, then take it from there. Is there anything that gives you hope right now? What gives me hope is that I have a strong feeling that there is a silent majority. Um, I This is my experience from teaching at Yale, which is the most progressive school probably in the country, and I won't lie, it's, it's tough. I mean, there's a controversy every other day. People are scared to talk. Um, I'm 
scared to teach in the way I used to. I, I'm much more self-censoring. Um, but I do notice, I mean, I'm very controversial, but my classes are huge. I have a huge wait list. So what I think is happening is that you hear the shrillest voices and they, for some reason, can actually kind of bully and shame a lot of people who are more moderate into signing things and saying things because they don't want to be shamed. But I, I actually think a great, I, don't, I think it's a large majority of the country is actually exhausted. They're exhausted with, with hating so much and feeling so, having to be so careful and wondering if they're going to say the wrong thing. So so that's my hope, that at some point, we're just it's just going to have gone too far, you know, canceling everybody, um, and it, the pendulum will start to swing back. Amy Chua is a professor at Yale Law School. She's author of Battle Hymn of the Tiger Mother, Political Tribes, a bunch of other books. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thanks so much for having me. If there really is a silent majority eager to get out of this toxic state we're in, the next question is how? I'm Julie Rose. This is Top of Mind. So there's polarization, which is normal in any political system. And then there's toxic polarization. Polarization is not a bad thing. In a a two-party system, polarization is necessary. You want to have, you know, distance between the two parties about what, how to move the country forward. This is Peter Coleman. He's a social psychologist at Columbia University and an expert in conflict resolution. Toxic polarization is when you get stuck in this emotional sea of contempt, um, and they become what we call closed systems. So basically, blue just live and talk to blue, and red just live and talk to red, and we don't feel a need to engage with them. We know what they're going to say. We can anticipate it. And that we're in that kind of closed system, and this is part of a 50-year pattern that continues to increase today. Red and blue Americans moving, you know, uh, blue more to urban areas, red to more rural areas. But even within cities, you can see that we're moving away from one another into neighborhoods that are, you know, uh, clusters of like-minded people. So we're physically sorting. We're emotionally filled with contempt for the other side. But like Amy Chua, Peter Coleman thinks there is a silent majority of Americans who are ready for a way out. There's a group called More in Common that studies um, polarization around the world in in the U.S., and they've identified this middle group of what they call the middle tribes, which, you know, lean left or lean right, but ultimately are fed up and exhausted. And that's the kind of good news because Hmm. we study societies that are deeply divided for, you know, decades and then ultimately choose an alternative, choose peace, choose to engage in more constructive ways with the other side. And most of those societies make that choice when there are times like this, where people are just exhausted and fed up and really motivated to do something else, to, to pivot, to you know, check their assumptions, to rethink who they're listening to and who they're believing in. Coleman's new book is for those of us in that group. It's called The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. So let's get practical. A lot of organizations have sprung up in recent years trying to bridge these divides. And often they'll pair you with someone from another political party to meet for a friendly chat. And that's based on something called contact theory, which is that when you have groups that don't have contact with each other, oftentimes when they meet each other, they say, think, oh, well, you're a decent person and you have kids and you're, you know, you're hardworking and whatever. And they can kind of get over those divisions. But when you have conflicts where you have deep beliefs, um, like uh, pro-Trump and anti-Trump beliefs that are so powerful, that are fed by different news media sources, um, and where that, that people feel so passionate about, then just encouraging people to get together and have a conversation often backfires. So Pew Research tells us that something like 65% of people that uh, get together with the other political side for a conversation, leave feeling more alienated and hmm. more frustrated. And some of those actually blow up and backfire. 
So lesson number one is that our current state of toxic polarization will not be solved by just putting people on opposite sides of an issue together in a room. You need to create a situation that lowers the temperature and builds trust. You'll probably need a facilitator and some ground rules. Here is an example. Coleman starts his book with the story of a group of Boston activists on opposite sides of the abortion debate. So in the 1990s, Boston is a, you know, a highly Catholic uh, city. Something like 36% of the population is Catholic. And pro-life, pro-choice was a very contentious issue. The rhetoric at the time was very heated. And in, in 1994, there was a shooting that took place in several clinics, killed a couple of women and wounded several others. And it really, again, was this kind of destabilizing moment where the archdiocese and the governor and the mayor all said, wait a minute, what, what, what are we doing? What, what have we created? And what happened was there was a, a group of uh, three pro-life and three pro-choice leaders, all women, um, that um, a group at the time was called the Public Conversations Project, reached out to them and said, would you be willing to come together and talk, you know, just a couple of times over a month with the other side. And they both sides were afraid to do it. They were afraid for their lives. They were afraid for their reputations, but they agreed to do it secretly um, uh, if it was well facilitated. And they came together and they met once and it was very hard to sit in the room with the other women. And they met again and again and, and the dialogues continued in secret for five and a half years. So these are three leaders in the pro-life pro and pro-choice movements who were secretly meeting, no one else knew about it, um, in these facilitated dialogues. And then in January of 2001, they came out publicly in the Boston Globe. The six women co-authored an article called Talking with the Enemy, where they described their experience. And it was a profound experience, and it was a difficult experience, but they came to really respect and care for one another. And that translated into the language that was used in the community. And ultimately, they suspect in the rhetoric around abortion in America, lowering the temperature on this. Even though they were just six women in one city in America. I mean, if that's true, that's actually quite hopeful for me because sometimes, I mean, I look at this entire country, you know, of hundreds of millions of people and I think, yeah. well, we're not, we're never going to be able to lower the temp temperature because, you know, I'm just one person. And what can me sitting down with somebody who disagrees with me, what can we actually do to affect any kind of change? Well, it's interesting, yeah, because it, again, it depends on how you think about change, but these were, were three influential leaders in their movements, in their communities and beyond their communities. And what they did through this process is come to realize the unintended consequences of their activism and the fact that the people on the other side were decent human beings that were, that were doing things that they believed were true and important. And so that transformed them and how they did their advocacy and their rhetoric and their press releases. And so a lot of the communications in Boston and beyond um, started to shift and change as a result of that. And I think it's important to recognize that, again, that is happening everywhere across this country. Let me give you one example. There's a group in Congress called the Select Committee for the Modernization of Congress. And it's an ad hoc committee that they bring together every 20 years or so when Congress is broken to fix it. And this current group has been brought together to deal with polarization in Congress and the dysfunction in Congress. It's a bipartisan group. And here's one of the recommendations. What they found out is that you know, when you're a freshman congressperson, you show up at, in, in DC, and the first thing they do is they put you on a blue bus or a red bus and they send you in different directions you know, to start the basically planning for war. And so their first recommendation was, don't do that. <laughs> don't put them on different buses at the very beginning and move them into a, a, a place of you know, competition and war. Why don't you start by having them meet each other and, and socialize and get to understand each other as human beings, well-intentioned Congress people. So there are influential groups that are doing things like that across the country in various sectors, including the media, journalism, uh, education, um, environmentalism, you know, there, there are people coming, across, coming together across these ideological divides and trying to 
change their, their way forward. At every level of society, Coleman says there's work to be done breaking down the systems and structures that keep us in us versus them mode. Reducing gerrymandering could help, says Coleman. So could changing the algorithms on social media so it's harder to vilify people. The media can help by resisting the urge to boil divisive issues down to a simple story of for and against, left versus right. Coleman says it's better to complicate the narrative, include contradictory details, show how nuanced and messy it is. The same principle applies to our own news consumption. Because under conditions like this, we're so comforted by, you know, news reporting or pundits that share our views. We really want to try to encourage ourselves to go into a a less comfortable zone. So one of the things I do when uh, um, an event takes place is I will force myself to go back and forth into different news channels. Uh, CNN, I'll watch it on MSNBC, I'll then go to you know Fox News or one of the other networks. And I force myself to see what is the coverage, what is the different what are the different points of view. And this is something that I've modeled for my children because you know I have children that are now young adults, but you know, this is how I watch the world is I I intentionally force myself to take in different kinds of information. Don't always agree with it. Doesn't always feel good. Doesn't always make me happy. But it's a habit I've gotten into. Um, And if you do that and you model that for your children, they'll pick up on that and have more and more of an inclination to do the same. Exposing yourself to views you disagree with can also help you develop the ability to have better conversations about tough topics. At Columbia University, Peter Coleman runs a lab that studies how and why encounters like that so often fall apart. It's called the Difficult Conversations Lab. And what they do is take two people, strangers, on opposite sides of an issue like abortion, put them together in a room and ask them to come to a consensus. You know, the first time we did it, we just let them go. We, we had a facilitator in there who would stop it if things got too tense or dangerous. But otherwise, we let them have the conversation. And what we found from that very first study was that the thing that distinguished these conversations that went well or well enough from those that got stuck and and really had to sort of be shut down were whether or not you were able to experience more complicated emotions, you know, contradictory emotions. So if if I'm pro-choice and you're pro-life, and we're having a conversation over that issue, it's likely that I'm going to feel frustrated, angry, upset, you know, disgusted, all of those things in the context of the conversation. But I also might think, oh, well, that's an interesting point, or or actually I just made an interesting point and you seem to hear it, or, you know, so I can feel more complex emotions, both positive and negative and kind of neutral, and move back and forth. Peter Coleman at Columbia University. His book is The Way Out, How to Overcome Toxic Polarization. Dylan Marin, who we heard from earlier, could teach a masterclass on these conversations. So clearly there is a lot that you and I disagree on. Um, I know this. <laughs> right? As you know, I'm um, a piece of um, So... Uh, I... Let me take that back. Let me take okay, that back. So, I was, you, you had caught me at a bad time. I didn't mean to call you piece of I apologize for calling you Okay. I want to lovingly point out you said I caught you at a bad time, but you mean that you saw my videos at a bad time, right? Well, for the most part, yeah. Me and my wife. Marin is host of the podcast Conversations with People Who Hate Me, where he calls up people who've said hurtful things to him online. We're coming back to him now for some specific advice on how to engage with someone, feel all the emotions, and have it go well. It's a skill Marin had to learn. One of the first guests I spoke to for the podcast, um, he he was just like down the line, just just on the opposite side of me politically. And I found that as I was talking to him, I just wanted to talk about every single thing we disagreed on. And, you know, in a lot of ways, I I think I was like 
just repeating what the internet told me to do because the internet is always talking about everything. A scroll is this like constant feed of everything all the time. And so I was like, well, all of these topics are so vital. We have to be talking about all of them. And so I started calling this overwhelming sensation of everything we should be talking about the everything storm. And I felt that the everything storm derailed my conversation with him. And I want to be clear, I'm, I'm taking ownership of that. That's on me. So how do you decide how to focus it? You know, sometimes it's as simple as just choosing one thing and accepting the limits of time and a conversation and knowing you can't talk about everything. And instead, um, I, I would highly recommend focusing on something that is important to you. I, I really like focusing on the personal. Why do you think these things? Tell me about your history. Tell me about what inspired you to even go down this path of believing this thing that you believe. And the less judgment you ask that question with, the more of an honest answer I think you're going to get. What was it about me and what was it about my videos that um, got to you so much that you had to send the message that you did? I'll tell you what, it was one little thing. You called it racist for somebody to say that the black community and the minority community has a criminality problem, black on black crime. I do believe that rooting a conversation in the personal is really what allows you to access someone. And, and I say that conversation feels like a dance to the sport of debate because it's a dance that feels more fluid. It's an improvisational modern dance, <laughs> to, to specify it. And it's one where there's this, this push and pull and an I'll go there and then I'll follow you there and maybe you'll go there and I'll go here to counter you. And there's a fluidity to it and there's um, an organic creative spirit to conversation that feels more rooted in love, whereas debate feels more rooted in opposition. And I think it's important to, to stop and ask ourselves, what does winning a debate actually do? How can you empathize with someone you deeply disagree with? You know, uh, this is a very simple answer. Um, but I don't think you really have to try to empathize with them when you engage them in conversation. Empathy just sort of happens when you hear someone's voice and they're telling you about themselves and you're telling them about you. It really takes two to tango because you can show up to have the most beautiful conversational dance with someone and if they just want to battle you, you're not going to find this. You're not going to find this deep well of empathy because they're going to be putting so many walls up. Um, they're still a human being, you know, um, but if they're not showing you their humanity or they're putting walls up around their humanity, that's ultimately not on you, you know? Do you worry that by empathizing with an individual that you are in some way encouraging or endorsing their beliefs or behavior? Um, I think I did worry about that. Um, specifically, people who espouse ideologies that I believe to be very wrong and hateful, like some of my friends, um, are are skeptical of that. Why give empathy to these people? And their, their follow-up to that is, why give empathy to these people who aren't giving empathy to you? A and, you know... Empathy is not endorsement is this mantra that I created for, for myself as a way to keep going with the project because I, I had to accept the fact that, as I said, empathy is a natural byproduct of conversation. I was not even trying to do it. I was empathizing with my guests. I liked my guests. And at the same time, the memos from the public square were constantly telling me, you have to combat these ideologies. You have to combat these ideas. You have to stamp them out. And what happens on a phone call, what happens in conversation, is that you start to differentiate the ideology, the hateful ideology even, from the individual person. And you can't unsee that. You can't unsee that a person who just said something so offensive to you is not all of the ideology that they're espousing. They are influenced by that ideology. 
and they didn't create that influence. Now, this does get into murky territory about accountability. You know, well, then does it just mean that it's just the ideology's fault and it's not their fault? No, it's it's a constant it's a constant balancing act between the two. And by by being part of the conversation, they are taking some accountability for that. I for me, yes. For 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 me, by showing up to the space of conversation, not combatively interested to, you know, get into the feelings of it, to express themselves, to show themselves to me, to listen to me as I show myself to them. Yes, yeah. And to what end? What? Uh, what's the point? I think it is to build a bridge at a time when bridges are very difficult to build, but also at a time when bridges feel that they can be laughed at. You know, that even to say that feels cheesy. Um, but I think just because it's cheesy doesn't mean we should not do it. Has this conversation helped you at all? I think so. I think so. Um, just to show that that two people so ideologically polarized mm-hmm. can have a good conversation without shouting racist, Start bag to each other. I think there's a good, there's something good there. There's something good there. um, But it went better than I thought it would. Oh, how did you think it was going to go? Contentious. Oh. (laughs) And I want to be clear. I believe in civility. I practice civility. I think it comes naturally to me. But I think many times I am praised at the expense of other people who don't have the luxury of practicing civility. And I mean, people who are so marginalized that they have tried civility and it hasn't worked. People who feel so hurt by the system that they don't have this deep well of empathy to draw from. I do have that well of empathy. I like empathizing with my guests and I've seen the transformative possibilities of having difficult conversations with people you disagree with. But that being said, conversation is not a mandate for all. It is not a prescription for activism. And I think while I totally accept and cherish and, you know, part of me just basks in the glory of these compliments, I think I have to accept it with a caveat of thank you so much, but I also hope that you recognize that this empathy, this deep well of empathy that I have is is a privilege that some people who feel so hurt by the world, by the system, don't have. And that's okay that they don't want to speak to their detractors because they're simply trying to survive. Dylan Marin's podcast and his new book are both called Conversations with People Who Hate Me. Top of Mind is a production of BYU Radio. Today's episode was produced by me with help from Cleon Wall and Ciara Hewlett. We had music and sound design by Jacob Malaski, Jerem Hansen, and the post-production team at BYU Broadcasting. If you are enjoying Top of Mind, please take a moment to rate and review the podcast wherever you listen. That will help other people find us and feel the power of thinking again. I'm Julie Rose. We'll talk soon.